Now, it's been a couple of weeks, I think it's been three, since we were in 1 Samuel together. So, as you're turning there to 1 Samuel chapter 5, on page 228, I'll ask you this question before we pray. What was chapter 4 about? Does anyone remember? There's a narrative, there's a history. What's going on in chapter 4? It's very significant. They bring out the ark, and what happens? They lose, and they lose big time. And what happens to the ark? The ark is captured. All right. Exiled. Exiled. That's about right. All right. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that we have your word, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, to give us instruction in your praise. We come, O Lord, to a passage of Scripture that is, as so many are, but almost uniquely brilliant and glorious and dark. And we would ask, O Lord, that you would give that light of the Spirit to see clearly what is in the hearts of men, what is even in our own hearts, and to see the radiance and the majesty, the power, the beauty, the triumph of our King Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. First Samuel chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon was fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and his territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us. And our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away 
the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This is God's almighty word. Well, you remember something of the background. The Philistines live in the plains out toward the sea and a little bit to the south, and they have, in this period of time, it's geopolitically significant, they have managed to gain a foothold in the land of promise all the way up to Afek, which is right on the main coastal highway from Egypt to Syria. They're beginning to cut off trade, in other words. And there they begin to project their strength even further into the hill country of Judea, the very heartland of Israel, and they apparently at this time, and maybe coincident with the taking of the ark, launch a campaign against Israel that ultimately wipes out Shiloh. What's Shiloh there for? Do you remember? Why would you go to Shiloh? To worship. They wipe out the tabernacle and the place of worship. Now, in chapter 4, we read of Israel's designs to defeat the Philistines at effect. They're going to stem the tide. They're going to release the chokehold. So they go into battle. They even take the ark, and they are completely overthrown. Philistine might, in oppression, push even further into the land that God's people were supposed to inherit. And the experience is so devastating for the high priest, Eli, the judge who is ruling at that time, that he dies, and his daughter-in-law dies, and the whole nation must have been absolutely heartsick. Imagine if something as significant as the Washington Monument had been stolen from your nation. And so they suffer these catastrophic losses, and the ark of God taken. What does this mean for Israel? It really is an ark in exile, a tragedy of cosmic proportions. Because recall what it symbolizes. It symbolizes on the top there of this little box the throne and rule of God. And beneath it would be kept the stone tablets of his law, his moral law, about which we confessed just earlier was first given to men. His entire rule based upon his righteous law, his mercy towards sinners. This is why he is to be praised by the angels that bend over the ark and by the men who approach with sacrifice. And this mighty symbol of the rule the sovereign, cosmic, universal rule of God in Jesus Christ is in a hostile place, and it's among strangers, and it is surely one of the lowest points in all of Israel's depressing history. Think of how the enemies of God blaspheme him. See how weak is the God of Israel. One of their later enemies, the powerful Syrians, say, 1 Kings 20, 28, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he's not a God of the valleys. He's not the God of all the earth. His influence and power are restricted. He doesn't dare go beyond his narrow boundaries. We'll put him into his place. Okay, that's the background. Now we come to a passage here this evening that we'll look at that is just so glorious and so wild and comical, I dare say, that there is very little we can do in response but simply praise and laugh and weep and praise some more. This is what God himself does. We read in Psalm 2, verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. 
The Lord will have them in derision. And we are supposed to join in. The prophet says, Isaiah 37, 22, She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Laughter. Derision. Because the Lord is going to magnify his power over all the nations. That's what we see. Verses 1 through 5, we see an encounter with Dagon. And then verses 6 through 12, God's interaction with the Philistines directly. We'll spend the bulk of our time on verses 1 through 5, but we will treat the remaining verses as well. Notice here how the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is also the God who rules the gods of all the nations. Now, we don't think about warfare so much this way, although I would contend that there is more of this than we realize. But in the ancient world, when you go into battle, when you launch a war, it is always religious. It's always a sort of earthly playing out of what is happening in a spiritual place. Who's going to win? In other words, if I could put it this way, we've always had religious wars, and to this day they still are, and it's not uncommon in the ancient world, and we see it here, you get the victory, what do you do? You take the enemy's God home with you. Well, the Philistines win the battle, like Jerry said, and the Ark of the Covenant is brought to Ashdod into the temple of the idol Dagon. And what incongruity, just think of this. When have any of the symbols of the living God been alongside the, the symbols of the dead idols? But here it is. And as we go along, we find out that this is actually a victory for the Lord. Not just a victory over his irreverent people, but it will also be victory over the Philistines. He is not going to stop with Israel. He's not done yet. Well, what was Dagon? Dagon, there's a lot of speculation, but... What we know is that he was a god who was worshipped fairly predominantly by the Philistines at this time, probably adopted from earlier Canaanites. We can read about his worship in Judges 16. Where is Samson when he pulls down the pillars of the temple? In the house of Dagon. Doesn't seem like things are going very well for Dagon, does it? Well, his worship has continued even into intertestamental days, and how he is represented is not entirely clear. There's been a great deal of speculation. The latest research... Many scholars are thinking that perhaps he might, might have been a sort of grain god representing prosperity. Many of the ancient gods would have been, quote-unquote, fertility gods. Perhaps that's what Dagon was. And um, he was the leading god, it would appear, of the Philistine religion. And in their superstition was apparently conceived to be the source of all apparently prosperity and the origin of all the other gods. But one thing is clear from the passage, whatever other speculations we might have, and that is that he is represented by the Philistines. He is apparently for his provider, for, for his worshipers, represented as one with hands that will provide and a head that can apparently hear this unhearing statue. Well, Ashdod appears to have been a place that was specifically dedicated to the worship of Dagon. And the name of Ashdod carries a kind of significance and weight to it because it means power, strength. Yes, of course, this is where you would expect the symbol of a fallen deity to appear. In the temple of the powerful and prosperous Dagon, in the place of strength, Ashdod. But we have a problem here, and we know this already. We've already 
been clued into it by reading the text, but you know it simply because you believe in the living God. The God of the Philistines is dead. And it will surely come to pass for the Philistines, as we read in Psalm 115, verse 8. Those who make them what? Do you remember? Those who make these idols become like them. They become like them, and so do all who trust in them. What are you going to end up being? Well, you might have hands, but they won't be able to do anything. You might have a head, but it will not be able to hear. I'd like you to just notice a few things about Philistine religion. I said we'd spend the bulk of our time on these first five verses. Notice the religious pluralism at play in Philistine territory. Religious pluralism. Now, I realize I'm going to use some fairly big words this evening, but I think you can handle them, and you children, you'll learn them. Pluralism of a religious kind is the idea that more than one religion is valid, and you can actually hold to many different tenets of many different religions because they all lead to or teach or in some way represent the same ultimate truth. In other words, and maybe you've heard this before, there are many ways to get to God. This is religious pluralism. Does that sound familiar? Maybe like somebody that you know even? This is the kind of pluralism in which the Philistines are engaged. Notice the ark is not destroyed and broken to bits. It's brought in to sit right there in the pantheon of the Philistine deities. Quite comfortable in their religions. Well, all false religions tend to multiply their gods, but Israel's God will not accept to be just one among many. Dagon is here set up to be kind of the the highest god, even over Yahweh, the living God. And God has nothing. He will not accept this. Uh, Those of you who might have served in the military will remember perhaps that there's a protocol for flags and the Department of of the Veterans Affairs says that when there are multiple flags, the U.S. flag has to be on the right and it is supposed to be in a group of flags the highest. And the Lord is not content to be the highest or the one furthest to the right. He is God alone, not one among many, not e pluribus unum. He is God alone and sole dea gloria. Listen to what we read, and we read this all throughout the scriptures, but Isaiah seems to love this theme. Isaiah 37, these are the words of Hezekiah. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. He's picturing that ark with the cherubim bending low. You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. So the Philistines think, Dagon is our God. No, he isn't. No, he isn't. Allah, I'm sorry, is not the God of the Muslims. Not at the end of the day. The living and true God is alone. That is his repeated assertion. There are no other gods. This is his majesty. This is his glory that he is not only unique, but he is unto himself, has his being from himself, and is therefore exalted over all. Why is Christianity so exclusive and difficult for everybody else to get along with? Because there really is only one God. Well, the Philistines apparently think that they are maybe doing the God of Israel some honor by placing him alongside of Dagon. I mean, after all, Dagon is such a high and mighty God. But Matthew Henry notes, they're mistaken because he is not worshipped at all. If he is not worshipped 
alone. Now, I'd like to draw a parallel here. Because we have a tendency to think of these things as just kind of the fairy tales of long ago. We live in a society of the fairy tale of secularism. And it makes the same, in modern and sophisticated terms, makes the same demands as religious pluralism. You can have your Jesus. That's fine. We accept him along with all the other gods. It's okay. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. Just do it at home. (laughs) Don't do it in my backyard. We will all meet on neutral ground, and all of our gods can be put aside for the one greater god, the Dagon of our day, secularism. Believe what you like, be what you want, just don't do it around other people. At least not if you're going to claim exclusivity for the God that you worship. We don't want his lordship here. Do you see that this is really not that very different from the claims of a religious pluralist society like the Philistines, or dare I say like Hinduism or many other false religions? You see, the Philistines are quite willing to tolerate and even benefit from Yahweh as long as he doesn't undermine the worship of Dagon. That's why he is where he is. He's supposed to give glory to Dagon. Well, it would appear, and several commentators note, that the Ark is taken by the Philistines as a symbol of their God's divine conquest, a proof of the superiority of Dagon in the hierarchy of their many gods. They've captured the ark. How do they interpret this event? Well, maybe we could even ask the question, how does Israel understand this event? Both of them look at this victory really in the same way. Dagon is superior and stronger than Yahweh. (coughs) And of course, in the ancient world particularly, but even to this day, the same tendrils run through our philosophies in our day. This would give us sort of vindication and proof. We're on the right track. We have the right leaders. We believe the right things. We have a divine title and right to our land and a conquest and a manifest destiny. So they use the ark as a kind of prize and an honor, a bit of a trophy for Dagon. We're in the right. A powerful symbol. This powerful God, the God who led Israel out of Egypt, we're better than that. We're better than that. After all, hadn't they triumphed over Samson, Judges 16? Now they've triumphed over Israel's God. Dagon must be the God of gods. Well, now we're going to move forward and actually look at the story a little bit more in detail. Because what happens? You can just imagine the celebrations that are being prepared. I mean, this is a, a major event in the life of any nation. We have triumphed. It is VI Day, Victory Over Israel Day. We gotta have some ticker tape, we gotta have some feasting, we're gonna get up early and we're gonna make ready, right? So where's the first place you do? Of course you have to, where's the first place you go? You go to the Temple of Dagon to make sure to give honor to the God who has brought about this mighty victory, and then you get there. And you know, in sporting events, we're told not to celebrate too soon. You get to the temple, and there is Dagon, all right, and he has fallen face down, poor thing. And his worshipers, of course, quickly try to set him back up 
got to set him back up again. Just notice here, who is helping who, right? Dagon needs a little help to be put back up. So he's put back up. And although the Lord's Ark is taken into a kind of captivity and exile, it doesn't appear to need any help. It seems like something's going on here. Indeed, the question must have been in their minds in the background. How did this happen, that Dagon's image, this statue, would fall down? Hadn't we fastened it in place properly? You can be sure this is a fairly tall statue, tall enough it would be apparent to fall all the way across, probably from the wall of the room, across the threshold of the door. This is not a small thing. This is the type of thing, and after all, it is your God. You bow down to it. You worship it. It is the source of all your hopes and dreams and expectations and prayers. So you, of course, are going to make sure it's stable. Well, we didn't get it right the first time. You can be absolutely sure we're going to get it right the second time. I'm sure they brought in their best carpenters, and they set things up right this time. And do you notice that there's a little bit of something like Esther going on here? The book never mentions the name of God, and yet in the telling of the story, we're kind of meant to start asking, so why did this happen? How is it that Mordecai ends up winning in the end? Well, there is an air of tension, and finally we arrive at the second morning, and Dagon has fallen not just once, but twice. And this time, his hands and his neck are snapped. And all that's left to him, the ESV puts it this way, is just a stump, or the original kind of phrase is, he's just kind of there. There's a clear message in this, isn't there? There's a very clear message. One commentator says, the Lord was not defeated. He wasn't inferior. He wasn't subordinate or about to suffer any sort of humiliation. They had attempted to humiliate the God of Israel. If they could do that, think how degraded Israel would feel. How humiliated. But it is Dagon that is destroyed. His head and his hands are cut off. Dead? Disabled? In the ancient world, and we have some examples of this in Scripture, one of the ways you prove that you're, you have really defeated your enemy is you cut off the head. Think of, think of Goliath. Or you cut off their hands. There are many examples of this. And even in the way that the idols would be manufactured, think of the actual physical idol and the way it would be manufactured, it, wouldn't, it would be hard to make something like this in one solid piece. And if you know anything about the manufacturing of idols, which is not necessary for you to know, but the way you would manufacture a statue typically would be, you would add the parts together and kind of join them. Well, this manufactured God is shown to be just that. He's broken along the lines of men's vain imaginations where they put them together. This is our, if you like, iconoclastic God who smashes the idols and makes them look pretty uncomfortably dead and useless. This can be nothing but a purposeful and deliberate act by someone who is very much alive and powerful. Dagon does not fall down in adoration. It's not even groveling. He falls down in death. Because the Lord has placed his feet on the neck of this enemy. Well, why? Let's go a little further with this. And I would suggest that the reason is because actually the Lord is keeping his covenant. He rules the nations to keep his covenant. At first it would appear in this sort of little vignette that 
okay, the, the ark is exiled. It's a premonition, if you like, of Israel's banishment. But not really quite. Because where is Philistia located? Where is Ashdod? Well, it just so happens. That is in the territory that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and told his people to go and take. And in their unbelief, and their immaturity, and in their faithlessness, they did not do it, and they faltered in their obedience. Great blessings, great promises held out to them, and they didn't enter in because of unbelief. They didn't go and fight. They didn't go and take. They didn't enter into their inheritance. Notice what's really happening here. This is the real clue. In one of the greatest tragedies that Israel has ever experienced, even in one of their deepest moments of spiritual coldness, the living God is actually working to keep his promise and to give them this land that he promised. He's preparing to conquer because he is still determined to bless them. I want you to follow this train of thought. The Lord is redeeming his people according to his covenant. The ark goes to Ashdod and... The Lord begins to do to the Philistines what he did to the presumptive and boastful and idolatrous Egyptians. Did you notice the idols falling down? Did you notice the plagues that are about to come, which we'll talk about? In Exodus 12, we read these words. The Lord says to Moses, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, pass overnight, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. What is God determined to do? And we find this again in Numbers 33. He is determined to execute his judgments on the vain idols of all the nations, including the Philistines. He is not charitable toward them. He is not patient with idols. He smashes them. He brings them into judgment and mocks them. So when Dagon falls down and there's judgment on the gods of the Philistines, what are we supposed to expect will happen next? Redemption. Redemption. When God judges the idols of Egypt, he brings his people out. God is going to bring out his ark held hostage for a moment, it would seem. But it is as clear as if he had said to them, let my people go. He will take their treasures, he will take their land, and he will give it in love to his disobedient people. Why does Dagon fall? Because the Lord is doing what he always said he would do, and he will keep his covenant. Isn't that remarkable? In the moment when Israel has so violated the covenant, transgressed against the Lord, blasphemed him by taking the ark, this precious symbol of his authority in the coming Messiah, and given it away practically, God is at work to bring about the destruction of his enemies. This is really a, a picture of what must the enemies of Christ have thought when they brought him down to the cross that he seemed to be forsaken. He was handed over to enemy powers. And yet in exile, Dagon must bow. And men and idols fall at the feet of a king who in death will triumph over all others. 
He will keep his promise, and he will redeem his people. That's what he accomplishes in his death. He conquers the last enemy, death itself. Well, I'm sure you have many questions, but we're going to move through some of these things very quickly. Notice how hard it is to uproot false religion from the heart. The Philistines develop a sort of superstition. Don't tread on that threshold at Ashdod, which becomes a symbol, and it's very interesting in the ancient world, a symbol of passage into the underworld, of death itself. Watch out. Mind the gap. But they don't repent. They don't bow to the God of Israel. They don't acknowledge his true majesty. They are blind still to his marvelous acts. And they set Dagon back up because he couldn't do it himself. Some glory, really, isn't it? We should not continue to prop up what Jesus is determined to tear down. It's a Sisyphean task that the nations have never done, never successful to restabilize their gods, and ours too. Our little idol factories are hard at work, and Jesus is going to break them down, friends. He will rule the gods of the nations, but he will also, in his Son, rule the peoples of the nations. Notice, as we transition now to verses 6 through 12, not just Dagon, but now tumors. Dagon falls. He's knocked to pieces. His dead hand's cut off. He's powerless. And we read, notice what it says here, striking. It's quite intentional. After his hands are cut off, verse 6, the hand of the Lord. Wait, the hand of the Lord is doing something. And it's heavy against the people of Ashdod. And it is repeated again and again. The Lord's hand, his mighty hand, is doing something. He's at work. And what's he at work to do? He plagues the Philistines with tumors. And we read in verse 12, many people died. How many? We're not told. But think about how many had just died in battle with the, with the Israelites. 30,000 Israelites died. And now the Philistines are just dying by presumably the thousands. And those who don't, we read in verse 12, have tumors. So they're either dead or they're like walking dead. Now it's, I'll grant again, speculative, circumstantial evidence, though I think points to the belief that this may be something like the bubonic plague, the Black Death. And we can guess that because there are so many people who die and because the plague appears to be connected with rats and mice just as it would be. Uh, by the, the Black Death. Notice verse 4 of chapter 6 and the connection that the Philistine lords make between the tumors and the rats. Well, the bubonic plague, if indeed it is that or something like it, comes and it strikes the Philistines. Why? Because God is the Lord of the nations and everyone is going to bow to him and finally all bend the knee to King Jesus in whose hand all authority rests. And if that's true, how much more Israel? Israel that seems so hopeless and far from God, even having blasphemed his name in such a terrible way, will bow. That's actually really great news, isn't it? Really great news. He exerts his redeeming power that not only Philistines, but even Israelites and even his church bow the knee King Jesus. Well, the Lord rules the nations. 
And so while Israel is suffering with terror and dismay and its glory seems to be departed, that's the question at the end of chapter 4, we find instead that the Lord is striding like a mighty warrior through his enemies and bringing destruction upon them. He is still the Lord. He is still getting the victory. And there is no room to consider him to be one among many. He is God alone, and he is victorious. It would seem like a mighty genius military feat that the Philistines have taken the ark, maybe the last nail in the Israelite coffin. The sort of event that gets told in lays in courts and spoken of by fathers to their sons around the fire at night for centuries to come. But this is the downfall of Dagon, and it is the deflation of Philistia as any kind of a serious contender against Israel. Notice what is happening. Israel went out to defeat Israel, uh, to defeat the, the Philistines, and they fail. The Lord goes out to defeat the Philistines, and he wins. By the time David will go up against Goliath, Dagon has proven his utter uselessness. The Philistines are weakened by the presence of God, and they are fearful. This is not how we expect the story to turn out, is it? Not in chapter 4. In one of the books of the Chronicles of Narnia series, there's a foolish prince. Some of you will know his name, Rabadash. The ridiculous. This is really a sort of picture, I think, of Dagon. Dagon the destroyed, Philistia the fallen. This is what must happen when King Jesus comes and rules. We read of his righteous and coming rule in Daniel, that rock that is cut out of the mountain, a little rock, and it grows bigger and bigger and bigger, and it fills the whole world. And by the way, it smashes the idols along the way. This is what Jesus says about himself, Luke 20. What then is this that is written, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will grind him to powder. He is speaking of himself. I think we have become accustomed in the manner of Ecclesiastes without faith to look at things as entirely bleak and the witness of the church as small and our own strength as utterly impotent. And this text tells you again, Jesus reigns. And he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. This is a picture of what happens at the end of the world. This is history drawing to its conclusion, the realization of the falsehood, the fantasy, and the futility of all other gods, and Jesus consuming judgment on all who hate him with wailing and gnashing of teeth. Do you notice that's what the Philistines are doing here? By the end of this chapter, they are crying out in pain and terror and death. This is not a fairy tale. This isn't yellow journalism. These are glittering, cold, hard facts. So beware. Beware who it is that we have to do with. As the story develops, I'm moving on quickly, there is a growing realization and panic among the Philistines. If you were to notice this, one commentator observes that as you read through the, the chapter, there is a growing description of the ark 
uh, not only of, in the beginning, the Ark of the Covenant, but then it transitions to the Ark of the God of Israel, to the Ark of God, and finally to the Ark of Yahweh, the Lord of all the earth. By the end of the saga, the Philistines know who they're really dealing with. Israel's God is doing this in retribution for their same irreverence as Israel showed to him. And so what do they do? As the plague rains down with death, the ark is taken from Ashdod, the place of strength, right? To Gath, and then to Ekron. Three of the major, the five, Philistine, five cities of the Philistines experience God's awesome judgment. It arrives in Gath, and there's a panic. There's terror. Don't let it in here. Think of this. Talk about nimbyism. Not here, please. We don't want the Ark of the Covenant here. The Ark of the, Co- of the God of Israel, it's even spoken in Ashdod, must not remain with us. His hand is hard against us and against Dagon. It's too difficult. Poor Dagon. And when it reaches Ekron, finally at last, it isn't just panic, but a terrified claim. You did this to kill us. You want to wipe us off the face of the earth. This is not the victory that we expected. We really thought, if you had been in that moment, you would think too, surely the Philistines win. It's all over for us. We might as well just head on over to Ashdod and start worshiping there. Nope. This is a parody of a victory tour. God driving the Philistines to cry out, not to Dagon, but to the God of heaven, because the Lord is a man of war. It says in Exodus 15, he has entered the battle, truly cosmic war, warfare. Dagon is defeated. The Philistines are de- defeated. The glory has not departed from Israel. It is just beginning to be seen. Isn't this marvelous? The Lord has made known his salvation, we read in Psalm 98. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. I want to conclude with this. That the fall of Dagon... And the collapse of Philistia, which it is a collapse, is one of these marvelous, really shocking, brilliant, and beautiful apologetics. This is apologetics. That is the defense of the faith. Just like Elijah encounters the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, this is a mighty, factual, in time, in space, in reality, real historical event in which God vindicates and magnifies his rule over all things. Notice what's happening throughout here. It's just so transparent. And unbelief so often doesn't see what is right in front of it. In everything that happens, the Philistines have to contend with the fact that Yahweh is really alive and real and executing his judgments. And Dagon does not. That's the real takeaway, isn't it? Look how weak Dagon is. Well, why would that be, I wonder? Because he is no God at all. He's face down before the ark. There are no other gods, only in the vain imaginations of men and the deceptions of Satan. All must bow, all shall bow to King Jesus. He is not a God who is helpless. Not a fragile God like Dagon who needs somebody else to prop him up. He rules in all might, and all glory belongs to him. That is our grand message. Not a wink, a weak and a simpering sort of Christianity that wonders whether we can make it through another century. This is the speculation of so many of the new atheists. Christianity is on its way out. 
Just give it a little time. It'll be gone in a few minutes. Not on your life. Just wait a couple of centuries and see where the new atheism is. Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. And he is pleased to redeem his people in their darkest moments. So what are you supposed to do? Here are the two things. Bow and worship and adoration. And it's okay if you laugh and mock a little bit and tremble while you're at it. This is the God that we serve. Those who make them will end up like them. Nothings. Don't be among them. But let the nations be warned and let the nations be glad because there is a God in heaven and he has given us himself and his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we thank you and adore and praise you that you are not defeated and you never shall be that your kingdom rules over all, and all the kingdoms of this world must and shall become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and that he shall reign forever and ever. We praise you that we have such a king, Jesus, crucified, raised, reigning, coming again, with all power, authority, and judgment in his hand, Take away all our fears. Open our mouths to speak of the praise of the God who is so patient and kind in his rule that he will even defeat our worst sins and the idols that ensnare us that he might have us for himself. O Lord, grant that we would receive this warning and kiss the sun, trembling. We ask that you would hear us and as we put our trust in him, May we be blessed. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.